Thanks to Audible for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. For a free audiobook with a 30 day free trial, go to audible.com slash fool or text the word fool to 500 500. It's Wednesday, February 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Asset Management. It's not Bill Barker, it's the guy in charge. It's Brian Hinman. Oh, snap. Thanks for being here. Sure thing. I appreciate it. Um, we are taping this a day early because uh, Wednesday, I'm heading out early to San Francisco, but I wanted to uh, basically take you away from your job because not only is it earnings season, but it's also um, a slightly more volatile market than we've seen recently. So I've got a good team I'm leaning on. There you I'm go. making Bill Barker work for once. For once, finally. Um, I, here's what I wanted to talk to you about because, and I have no idea what's happening in the market because I don't have a crystal ball. So I don't know what's happening on Wednesday. While, while people are listening to this, they may be like, why aren't you talking about X that happened on Wednesday? That's because we're taping it the day before. Uh, but I, I enjoy following you on Twitter. I especially enjoy following you on Twitter when it's earnings season because. Uh, because I not only learn some things, but I also learn how you think. And that's what I wanted to do in this episode, was sort of take some of your tweets and have you unpack them a little bit and, and explain a little bit more, because some of them have to do with your evolution as an investor, and some of them have to do with just concepts that I think are interesting for investors. So, I'm just going to go in no particular order here. Um, uh, Facebook reported last week, and you had referred to what you call the capacity to suffer. And for those who might have missed Facebook's latest quarterly report, one of the things that came up was, in a nutshell, CEO Mark Zuckerberg expressing a willingness, which really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who has paid attention to Mark Zuckerberg. He expressed a willingness to sacrifice short-term bottom-line results for long-term public good of his company. Um, I say you call it the capacity to suffer. You you refer to someone Russo. Who is Russo? Uh, Tom Russo, famed value investor. Okay. So, in terms of the capacity to suffer, that seems like something that's great if you're Facebook or Alphabet, <laughs> if you're a company that has a cash printing machine in the back room. But when you're looking at a given company, how are you how are you evaluating any given company through that lens of the capacity to suffer? Yeah, I'm glad we called out Tom Russo because I can't take credit for the phrase capacity to suffer. It's something that he looks for in all of the investments he he makes, and his track record is is phenomenal. So I think. You know, like uh, like many investors, we're just sort of uh, trying to reach out into what is already known and been tested, and learn from other people's mistakes. And uh, this is one that I lean on heavily, um, and try to incorporate when I'm learning about how CEOs behave, how they're allocating capital. Um, so you bring up a great point in that the capacity to suffer, and you framed it up pretty well. It's it's forsaking short term for long term. It's a heck of a lot easier to do that when you've got uh, a a business like Facebook does that doesn't have any problems for money. But I think what 
the exercise does is it it forces you to understand that uh, CEOs and their management teams uh, are constantly making trade-offs, and these are trade-offs for uh, strategy and investments that you're going to make to uh, either hit the quarter or uh, create intrinsic value for the long term. And so it's an exercise of getting into how decisions are actually made. And what I love about uh, Zuckerberg and, and Facebook is he couldn't be any clearer about his desire to build Facebook to an enduring business, uh, and he doesn't care about the short term. And you see this elsewhere. It's all about when I'm when, you're, when I'm looking at management team management teams. It's all about piecing together um, different uh, maybe disparate pieces of evidence into a picture that makes sense. It's the mosaic theory. Um, He's just very clear about it. He lays out. Uh, oftentimes, he talks about their roadmap being, uh, I think it's three, five, and ten years, and their strategy to address that. So you can tell that they are thinking long term. So in the case of Facebook, it's frequently pointed out that Mark Zuckerberg, sitting right next to him, has Sheryl Sandberg, and maybe he can afford to think long term and think about well, we can sacrifice the short term because. Sheryl Sandberg's job is much more short-term, and it, yeah. like he's got her right there to say, to to push back when necessary, and say, well, let's not completely forsake the short-term. When you're looking at any given company, are you are you looking for that type of team? Like, or I guess I guess maybe a better question is, is there a stronger case to be made for companies that have a strong management team as opposed to a single person who? Can handle everything without a doubt. There's uh, there's value to the balance there, and I think uh, this is reminding me of a quote from Howard Schultz, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't uh, recall it off uh, off the top of my head. But he was talking about uh, the long term investing for the long term versus hitting quarterly numbers, uh, and he basically has said that the long term is made up of many quarters. And so you have to have those two time periods firmly in in you know in each hand uh, as you're making these decisions. And so, as, as we think about capacity to suffer, I think Schultz and Starbucks is another great example of this. I mean, probably, uh, I don't know, eight years ago or so, uh, they were making massive investments in China. And the that segment of the business was losing money. And analysts were calling, you know, calling for a strategy change, saying, how can you keep throwing money at this? Um, when is it gonna? When is it gonna turn green? And Schultz said, "Be patient. We want to do this right. We see this long term as a market that could rival the size of our U.S. business." Fast forward to today, and the China region is responsible for half the growth that Starbucks is experiencing. They see it as a market that's going to be larger one day than the U.S. market. So, um, balancing those short term. Uh, and long-term considerations is critical, and I think it's something that uh, the stock market will reward you for if you do it consistently. Jeff Bezos and Amazon is obvious, an obvious example of this, um, but you see it, you know, you see it in, in other situations as well. Uh, not everybody gets the credit; uh, you have to earn the credit. Moving on to another company, you were going through Texas Instruments quarter, uh, and 
posted a note about a quote that you pulled from the management at Texas Instruments. Uh, we believe free cash flow will be valued only if it's productive, productively invested in the business or returned to owners. I looked at that, and for some reason, it like it was like a light going off. Like, oh right, because at, when I read that, I thought to myself. I think every time I've read a quote from a company talking about free cash flow, I have automatically given them credit. And I think what you're pointing out is that's a nice reminder that no, just <laughs> having free cash flow is not worthy of credit in and of itself. Yeah. And uh, so I think Texas, Texas Instruments um, is a, a great case study in uh, productive utilization of, of cash flow. And capital allocation. If you go to their investor relations website, they actually have a slide deck specifically around capital allocation. So they make they clearly lay out their strategy for what they're going to do if they generate excess cash. Yeah, you hear people say all the time that a business or value is a function of discounted future free cash flows, right? And I believe that to be true. As an investor, but um, it's important to sort of, I guess, understand a little bit uh, what free cash flow is and what free cash flow isn't. And it's funny you wrote a note to me saying I didn't really think about whether free cash flow was good or bad. I mean, one way that free cash flow can be thought of as bad is it can be thought of as an acknowledgement that there isn't uh, sufficient reinvestment for the business. So, a company doesn't necessarily have anywhere to reinvest in its business to generate future value. Um, another way that it can be bad is if there's extra money left over, and you've got a CEO who's interested in empire building, and he goes out, or he or she goes out, and, and, uh, and buys businesses simply to get bigger, or because he doesn't have a better use for for the capital. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a nice reminder. Uh, it's nice to hear management teams uh, be thoughtful about uh, what they're going to do with their free cash flow instead of uh, tr- having just sort of a mindless use of it. I would say I'm sorry for calling you out on this next point, but you've already called yourself out, and it's uh, uh, so I'm just bringing it to light on this podcast. But uh, you wrote something a few days ago, reading through Tractor Supply, and finally realized how I messed this one up. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Tractor Supply is a company that comes up every now and then. I I, I know it's a company that uh, Motley Fool Asset Management has has focused on for a while. For those unfamiliar. What's the thumbnail sketch on Tractor Supply, and and what in fact did you realize your mistake was? Yeah, they're a uh, a rural retail company, and so they sell things to the uh, the farmer lifestyle. So things uh, you know, things like animal feed and uh, you know farm equipment, that sort of thing. Um, and it has been a phenomenal growth company uh, and a phenomenally Performing stock over the past 15 years, um, so uh, we've had investment in Tractor Supply for some time in Molly Fool Asset Management, and it's been it's been a good one. It's been a good one. Uh, however, for the last couple of years, um, the stock has really fallen out of bed. We've uh, we've taken some big losses in it, um, and so I really think that you know 
one of the best uses I get out of Twitter is as sort of a diary and a, a way to log. Um, you know my investing thoughts at the time to track back later, and so every once in a while I'll have one of these where you know I sort of have a, a light bulb goes off and it's like man, I realize how I screwed up, and so with tractor supply specifically, there were just some things going on um, that uh, were probably uh, that I, I things were going so well that I didn't question enough. As the time when the times were good, and by the time that I realized it was sort of too late, the market had realized before I did. And usually, it's uh, in this case, it was uh, you know threats from online competition and uh, decline in oil markets caused um, sales to go down a little bit, and then all of these problems came to light. So it's sort of the Warren Buffett quote, you know, you see who's swimming naked when the tide goes in. Yes, and by the way, that mistake you mentioned. Every investor makes that mistake. Yeah. Even the great investors early in their careers, they make that mistake of essentially things are going well for whatever time, pick your time frame, a year, two years, three years, and then that investor starts to pay less attention because, hey, times are good, things are going well, and it's easy to just sort of lose that discipline and think, no, why do I, why do I need to rigorously dig into every quarter when they've obviously proven they can get it done every single quarter? Yeah, and what 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 ended up happening, uh, you know, my lack of diligence, the, the things I should have been asking questions about is, wow, this company is growing, uh, you know, growing really well. They're opening up, you know, 100 stores a year. Um, more and more people are coming. The concept is really catching on. And uh, when a company, a retail company, has success like that, that's reflected in the financial. So it looks like everything's going, going really well. But for any growing business, it's really important to understand uh, how the company, how management is building the the sort of the guts of the operation to be able to handle being a larger, more successful company. Um, and this makes this makes total sense, right? I mean. The way you run your household when it's maybe uh, you and your wife is going to be completely different than when you have three or four kids, right? There just have to be oh, yeah. stronger <laughs> systems in place to make sure that the wheels don't fall off. Um, and so, any growth investment that you're looking at, it's very critical to understand how they are investing in the systems that are going to allow the business to scale or not. I mean, we see. We see uh, Under Armour is a, is a great example of that right now. Under Armour. I believe grew uh, too big too fast and couldn't handle uh, the demand that was out there, and we're, and it is suffering from that right now. And they're they're trying to retrench a little bit and build up the internal operations to be able to support further growth. It's exactly what happened with Tractor Supply, and I simply didn't ask the hard questions of, you know, what are they doing with uh, their their back office software um, and, and point of sale software? Um, how are they? Um, Interacting with uh, with customers and building loyalty, um, how are they handling you know product assortment as they're growing this fast and and, and suppliers, um, and then are they are they missing online? And in fact, they were. They just weren't investing in these capabilities. And so when consumer uh, tendencies changed just a little bit, uh, it it really shined a bright light on what they hadn't been doing. I'm glad you mentioned Tractor Supply and specifically the number of locations they were opening, because one of the things that has changed for me personally as an investor is I I have sort of gotten to the point whether it's a retailer or a restaurant concept I've gotten to the point where 
Anytime a company is talking about the number of locations they are opening, as an investor, I want to know why that number. Now, sometimes the question is for me is framed as, why that many? That seems like a lot. Are you being too aggressive? And sometimes it's framed as, why that few? Yeah. That really doesn't like. Are are you that slow? Like, but I think that you can almost never go wrong as an investor. Not necessarily challenging, but just simply at, like digging into and finding out for yourself what what is the process that this company goes through to decide at a given number, because it frequently happens at the end of Q4 earnings, where they say, "Here's our forecast for the year," and here's how, or it happens in you know the January quarter, and they'll say, "Well, this is our forecast for this calendar year." Yeah. They've come up with a number. It's always good to know. Well, how did they arrive at that number? Absolutely. And and one of the things you're seeing at Tractor Supply is uh, they were anticipating opening just over 100 stores. They're dialing that back to about 80 in the next year because they're. Ability to manage and their attention, management team's attention, can only be spread so thin. And so now that they are focusing on all these other areas, installing a new POS, doing more uh, omni channel initiatives, rolling out um, uh, customer loyalty programs, uh, they simply can't open as many stores and do it well. So I think it's important to remember that any growing company is going to go through growing pains. This is fairly normal. But it's our job as investors to keep our eye on the ball and keep asking hard questions. Before we go on, I want to say thanks to Audible for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. For our dozens of listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com slash fool or text the word fool to 500-500, and you can browse their unmatched selection of audio content. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Audible also has exclusives and original audio shows. I'm working my way through John Hodgman's Vacation Land, True mm. Stories from Painful Beaches. Uh, takes me back to my home state of Maine, which I love. Um, the way life should be, Chris. Exactly. It is life the way it should be. <laughs> uh, and, I, and by the way, on behalf of uh, uh, everyone in Maine, I appreciate how often you and your bride vacation there. Because after all, it is vacation land. So thank you. Welcome, Chris. Uh, Audible also has the send this book feature. You can share a book from your library or uh, with anyone. And if it's their first time accepting a book through this feature, they can listen for free. And they also have speed control. You can listen faster or slower. It's narration at the speed that suits you. So get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com/fool or text the word fool to 500-500. That's a u d i b l e.com/f-o-o-l or text the word fool to 500-500. One last thing before I let you go, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by this. If I had spent the time to think about it or delve into it in the way that you do, because uh, you're just so you are so diligent, and you do so much homework. But you had called out Procter and Gamble, which is a company that we we've talked about, you know, constantly on this podcast since we started doing it in 2011, and specifically with P and G, with all the brands that they have, literally thousands. Of ad agencies and marketing agencies. It's astounding. What? I hadn't even thought of that. I never would have guessed that number, given that they don't have thousands of brands. So at a minimum, you could just say, well, why don't they just have one? Even if you want to silo it and say one ad agency for brand, that is so much more messed up than I thought it would have been, <laughs> and it makes me even less interested in Procter and Gamble as a stock. So. 
uh, to level set here, uh, Procter and Gamble in their earnings call uh, alluded to, or they're trying to make a point of how much money they're saving, and they are uh, coming off of a ten billion dollar cost savings initiative, and so they're trying to uh, rally investors, saying, "Look how great we are at cutting costs." But you sort of just have to stand this statement on its head to uh, and, and think about it a little bit. They they announced that they've already reduced the number of ad agencies they use by sixty percent from six thousand to twenty five hundred, saving seven hundred and fifty million dollars in agency costs. That's incredible. But then they go on to say, "But we're not done." We are entering into another $10 billion cost savings program, and we're going to reduce the number of agencies we use by another 50%. So they're going to go from 6,000 to 1,200 or so, which still seems like a ridiculous amount. I mean, one of the things that is causing PG so much trouble lately is upstart brands and the ability that the internet has provided small brands to. Grow into something significant and establish a brand presence without using an ad agency, just by you know whipping out a cell phone and taking a video, uh, putting it on YouTube and, and helping it and hoping it goes viral. So you've still got PNG with a long way to go, another ten billion dollars in savings. I mean, when I hear things like this, it just makes me say, no wonder that an activist investor is involved, uh, urging you to to change things pretty dramatically. And if you think about how traditionally, I mean, let's let's take it away from P and G just for a second. Any company that is doing significant amounts of advertising has natural tensions within that company because the people responsible for the TV budget are—it's all about their budgets. Everyone's protecting their budget, so the TV people. They want their budget, the radio people, the podcast, the online people, the print, everyone, and they're all agitating for even more budget. There's the creative struggle. So, I like when I read this and I was sort of reading through what you had posted on Twitter, all I could think of was not just like put aside the agency fees. I just thought about how many staff hours are wasted every month by back and forth infighting. Simply over budgets. <laughs> it's that was my comment I made on Twitter too. Is how many people does it take to manage six thousand agencies? I mean, it's in, what an incredible amount of uh, seemingly incredible amount of waste. Um, it, it's just it goes to show that uh, in these you know large, mature, you know older stayed companies, um, when when you're starting when you're thinking about you know. Uh, removing costs and what uh, a healthy margin profile could look like. There's probably more fat to cut than you realize. <laughs> if you want to read more from Brian Hinman and his colleagues, you can go to FoolFunds.com and read the insightful comments every month from the Motley Fool Asset Management team. You can also get on Twitter and file, uh, follow Brian Hinman. B R Y A N H I N M O N. I know it's your busy season. I appreciate the time. Hey, happy earnings season, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.